Well, good morning again to you. You can say good morning back. Thank you, Caleb. You can take your Bibles and turn with me to chapter 1 of the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. Today we begin this new series and this significant book, and I trust that it will be fruitful in the life of our church. Someone asked me, how long is the Luke series going to last? I don't know, but chapter 1 alone has 80 verses, if that gives you any preview. One well-known pastor took a decade to preach through Luke. I will not take that long. (laughs) But it is a significant book, friends. One of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And Luke, in particular, makes a unique contribution among the four gospels. We have four gospels on purpose. So our first inclination should not always be to harmonize the ones with the others, but just to let each one give its own message to the life and ministry of Christ. Luke makes a unique contribution. It's Luke alone that gives us the detailed background to the birth of John the Baptist, which then leads into the familiar description of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem's manger. Only Luke gives us that. Did you know that Luke is the only gospel writer that uh, includes the story of the 12-year-old Jesus staying behind in the temple to amaze the religious leaders? Luke's the only writer to recount some of Jesus' most well-known parables, the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, the Rich Man, and Lazarus. Those are all unique to Luke. In fact, a good portion of Jesus' parables are unique to Luke. And and we could go on. The meeting with Zacchaeus, the wee little man, that's only in Luke. The raising of the widow's son to new life, that's only in Luke. So much of what we remember about Jesus' ministry comes to us through Luke's Gospel account. So it is a lengthy book, but it is a rich book, brothers and sisters. It is rich beyond measure. How long is it going to take us? I don't know. But I trust that however long it is, we won't begrudge one Sunday of our time walking the road to Jerusalem with the Lord Jesus. And that process begins today with what is sometimes called Luke's prologue or Luke's preface. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. I hope you've turned there in your Bibles. And I invite you to follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray as we consider God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for Your help now that You would give us ears to hear. I pray, God, that You would help me to speak things that are true and faithful to the Scriptures and that You would give Your people discernment to hold fast to the truth. Father, please keep us close to You through Your Word. Please grant us grace now and help us to grow. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What are the things in life that you are certain are true? What are the things in your life that you are certain are true? What are the things that would stand firm in your mind even if everything else were shaken? I have a few things I'm certain of in life. Some are significant, like 
my family's love for me. Some are less significant. I'm certain that my mother-in-law's pizza is the best pizza on earth, and I'm going to eat it tonight. Happy Father's Day to me. If you had to write down the things this morning that you're certain of, that can't be shaken in your mind, that you know bedrock, foundation, solid, can't be moved true, if you had to write those down, what's on that list? What are you certain is true? As you think about that list, friends, do the events of Jesus' earthly life and ministry make the cut? It's a good question to ask yourself. Am I certain that Jesus of Nazareth lived and walked on this earth? Am I certain that He healed the lame, opened the eyes of the blind, and amazed the minds of the proud with His teaching? Am I certain that He went to Jerusalem where He stood before Herod and Pilate to be condemned as a lawbreaker? Am I certain that even though He was innocent, Jesus suffered and died a criminal's death on the cross? Am I certain that Jesus did not stay dead, but rose again on the third day? Am I certain that He appeared to upwards of 500 eyewitnesses before ascending again to heaven on the clouds? Am I certain that right now, at this moment, on June 16th, 2019, Jesus of Nazareth is alive and seated at the right hand of God. Am I certain of these things? If everything else moved, am I certain of this? Friends, the cynic would say that certainty about anything is impossible and that anyone who claims certainty is simply trying to exert power over someone else. The skeptic would say certainty is a myth since there's no way to answer every possible doubt. And the fool would say certainty? Who cares about certainty? Let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But friends, the Bible would say that each of those people is wrong. Dead wrong. Certainty is not only possible, it is given to us in the Word of God. And the opening here in Luke's Gospel makes clear that this certainty applies first and foremost to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you heard it a moment ago as we read, but the preface to Luke's Gospel gives us his grand purpose in writing. Why does Luke write this book? Certainty, friends. He writes to give God's people certainty regarding what has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. These four verses are one long sentence in the original. It's a well-crafted sentence designed to establish from the start that Luke has done his homework as a writer and as a historian. In fact, throughout these opening verses, Luke goes out of his way to stress the historical accuracy of what he writes. Notice in verse 1 where Luke mentions other writers who have compiled a narrative of these things. You see, Luke is not writing in a vacuum. He writes in a community of other witnesses who also testify to the history of what God has done in Christ. Look at verse 3 also, where Luke says that having followed these things closely, it seemed good to him to write an orderly account. Friends, the emphasis again is on accuracy. Trustworthiness. Luke spoke to the eyewitnesses of Christ's life. Luke tracked down sources. He heard their stories. And then he carefully brought all of that work together into this Gospel record we have before us today. All of that to say, brothers and sisters, Luke clearly wants you to know that the events in this book are real historical events. They happened as Luke reports them. And as the readers of Luke's Gospel, we can have confidence... We can have certainty 
in what we read. And look, here at the very beginning of the whole sermon series, I want to press this home just a bit further for a moment. From the start, I want to impress upon you the importance of affirming the historical accuracy of Luke's account. You could go down to the local Christian bookstore and pick up a book on the Gospels, and there's a decent chance you will read in there something like this. It doesn't matter if the Gospels are historically true. All that matters is that they communicate uh, spiritual truths. You might hear that. It's often said that it doesn't matter if the Gospels are technically or historically true. All that matters is the spiritual truth. You'll hear this most often in connection with Jesus' miracles. So, for example, when Jesus heals the leper in chapter 5, it doesn't matter if that's historically true, some people will say. All that matters is the spiritual truth that that, uh, we can be cleansed from the things that dirty us or make us unclean. Here's the problem with that perspective, friends. Luke himself disagrees with it. Luke himself views what he writes as historical, as flesh and blood realities that occurred in time and space in a real place with real human beings. And Luke now records that history for the people of God. Now, to be sure, the Gospel of Christ is more than mere history. Listen to me. It's more than mere history. There is spiritual truth communicated in these events The life of Christ is more than mere history, but it cannot be less than history. It cannot be less than history, friends, because anything less than history is ultimately powerless. Just think about it for a moment. A myth may engage the imagination, but it cannot command the human will. A myth may engage the imagination, but it cannot demand the allegiance of the human heart. And God's Word always aims to shape our lives according to the truth. So certainly, the Gospel record is more than history, but it cannot be less than history. So, if you're here this morning and perhaps you're not certain today about what you believe, or perhaps you do believe, but you've always had those little doubts that nip at the corner of your mind. Do you have those? Or perhaps you're just tired and worn out and in need of a reminder as to why any of this matters. Whatever the case, friends, I have good news for you. I hope it's good news. God's Word aims to give you certainty today. Certainty that is not rooted in myth, but in the flesh and blood history of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. As you look at the details of this paragraph I'd like us to see three purposes this morning at work in Luke's faithful narrative. Three purposes that when taken together can provide you with certainty. Let me give them to you in advance. Number one, Luke's narrative testifies to the fulfillment of God's plan. Number two, Luke's narrative passes on the truth of God's Word. And number three, Luke's narrative strengthens the faith of God's people. So, let's begin with that first purpose. Luke's narrative testifies to the fulfillment of God's plan. 
as we noted a moment ago, verse 1 opens with a note of historical emphasis. Notice again what Luke writes, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things accomplished among us. Again, we hear how Luke stands in line with other witnesses of Jesus' life and ministry. Luke himself was not an eyewitness, as we'll see in just a minute in verse 2, but Luke is a witness. He is following on from others who have also witnessed and recounted the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. But there's something else in verse 1 that perhaps should get more of our attention. Notice how Luke speaks of the things that have been accomplished among us. Friends, the idea here is of something being brought to completion. It's a note of fulfillment, in other words. Now the question becomes the fulfillment of what? What is it exactly that Luke sees being brought to completion or being accomplished? The answer, friends, is the plan of God. The plan of God for the salvation of His people. You see, we may be in Luke chapter 1 this morning, but the gospel message of Jesus Christ actually begins in Genesis chapter 1. From the beginning, God determined to save a people for Himself. From the beginning, God purposed to display His glory by redeeming His people from sin and death. And I choose those words determined and purposed on purpose. It's the plan of God. This was not a plan that God came up with on the fly in the Garden of Eden. You do know that, right? Like Genesis 3 does not cause God to go into heaven's corner and say, okay, what am I going to do now? That's not how it works. From the beginning, God had a plan. And from the beginning, God has been working out this plan. Before the foundation of the world, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, God has determined to save His people. And Luke's point here in verse 1 is that this plan has been accomplished in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. All that God has been determined to do since before the foundation of the world, He has now done in this man Jesus. Back in Genesis 3, when God promised to crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman, that promise is brought to completion in Jesus Christ. In Genesis 12, when God promised to bless Abram and through Abram to bless all the nations, that plan is fulfilled in Christ and now carried on through His church. In Exodus 12, when God told His people that the blood of the Lamb would save them from the angel of death, that foreshadowed promise has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. In 2 Samuel 7, when God promised His people a king in David's line who would reign forever, that plan has been brought to completion in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. In Isaiah 53, as God saw the day when His servant would take on the sins of His people so that they would be cleansed, that promise is fulfilled in Jesus when He hangs on the cross bearing the curse of God against Himself. God's promise of land in Joshua chapter 1 fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God's promise in the temple and the sacrificial system in the law fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God's promise in Psalm 2 that a king would receive every nation on earth as his inheritance and he would rule over them for the glory of God. That promise is fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. You see, from the beginning, God has had a plan. That plan has been revealed in God's promises. And now Luke is telling you and me in verse 1 that those promises are done, complete, signed, sealed, delivered in the Lord Jesus. Everything God has determined to do, He has done in this man. And that means, brothers and sisters, that the history of Jesus Christ is ultimately redemptive history. 
These things that we're going to read in these 24 chapters, they're not merely events. They are the divine accomplishment of redemption. People often say to me, I would believe in God if I would see Him do something today. Read His Word, friend, and see Him act. From the beginning, right here in verse 1, all the way to the end in chapter 24, Luke wants you to see that Jesus Christ came to save the people whom God has called to Himself. Jesus Christ came to fulfill what God has promised. He came to complete God's plan. Indeed, Jesus Christ is God's plan. Hidden for ages past, foreshadowed in the Law and the Prophets, and now revealed to the church through the preaching of the Gospel. These things have been accomplished, Luke says. It's the plan of God. Brothers and sisters, I hope you're gripped by a sense of wonder that what we're going to read in these 24 chapters is the most glorious, the most marvelous, the most astounding good news that could ever be uttered on earth. We are far too familiar with Jesus. God has kept His promises. That's really the grand takeaway of Luke's Gospel. It's really the grand takeaway of the Bible. God has kept His promises. He has done precisely as He said He would. And therefore, this Gospel is trustworthy. This Christ, whom we're going to read about, is worthy of your faith. He's worthy of your allegiance. He's worthy worthy of your very life. It's the plan of God accomplished, Luke says, verse 1. But there's another aspect to this that I want you to notice in, in, in verse 1. Look again where Luke says that these things have been accomplished among us. You see that there at the end? They've been accomplished among us. That is, the Gospel of Jesus Christ did not happen in some dark, hidden corner of history away from the watching eyes of the world. No, Jesus lived and ministered among us, Luke says. Out in the open. For everyone to see. I had some Mormon missionaries come to my house one time. And I asked them, why did Joseph Smith have to receive all of his visions in secret? Alone. With no other witnesses. I asked them why nobody other than Joseph Smith ever saw those golden tablets. Doesn't that bother you? I asked them. They didn't answer me. But the same could be said about Islam. Why did Muhammad have to receive all of his visions in secret? If this is the plan of God in Islam, why not reveal it publicly and openly? Those are serious questions. And those are questions that do not apply to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. God has not kept Himself hidden. And He has not fulfilled His plan in secret. Far from it. God put Jesus on center stage. Right there in the ins and outs of daily life in Galilee, Jesus lived and walked. Right there in the open square of the temple, Jesus taught and preached. He told the religious leaders when they tried to condemn Him, I taught out in the open. Why didn't you come to Me then? Right there on the hillside outside of Jerusalem, Jesus died. But three days later, He rose again. 500 eyewitnesses saw Him. Thomas touched Him. He put His hands in the wounds. His disciples witnessed Him ascend again into heaven. And then many of those disciples lost their lives in martyrdom to proclaim this good news. You see, Christianity is not founded on some secret. God hasn't kept Himself far off. God has fulfilled His plan right there in front of people's faces. He's done what He has promised and He's done it among us, Luke says. Where humanity could see it and witness 
His saving power. Why does any of that matter? You may be asking. Why does it make a difference if God did this among us? Well, the answer, friends, has to do with faith. It has to do with faith. You may have heard someone talk about taking a leap of faith in becoming a Christian. You ever heard somebody say that? Faith is you just got to take a leap. You got to take a leap of faith. Friends, that's not really a biblical description of faith at all. Faith, according to the Bible, faith in Christ is not a blind leap into nothingness. I'm going to say that again. Faith in Christ, according to the Bible, is not a blind leap into nothingness. No, faith in Christ is grounded on what God has done in history to fulfill His promises. In other words, God has given you reason to believe. Now listen, I affirm along with you, if you're a member of this church, that faith is a gift of God. Faith can only be given by God's Holy Spirit through the preaching of God's Word. Amen? But there is reason to believe. Good reason to believe. Right here in God's Word, God has laid out the truth of what He has done. He's recorded the fulfillment of His promises. And that means if we long for faith to take root and grow and become strong, then we must look to God's Word. We must read and believe what God has revealed. Far too often, friends, we act as though faith is something we can produce on our own. We act as though we can make faith stronger ourselves. But listen to me. Faith is always a response to God's Word. Faith always grows stronger by first going deeper into the Word of God. So wherever you are this morning, God's call on your life from verse 1 is the same. Listen to His Word and believe what He has revealed to be true. Do you want your faith in Christ to be stronger today? Then anchor your life in the Word of God. Do you know Christ today? Do you believe and are you trusting in His life, death, and resurrection for your salvation? God has revealed Himself, friends. He has laid out clearly in His Word the truth of what He has done. And now that clear and truthful Word stands ready to give you faith and then to strengthen the faith that God Himself provides. Listen to the Word of God, friends. Anchor your life in God's Word. There's good reason to believe. God has not kept Himself hidden. He's made Himself known in Christ. So bank your life on what He has accomplished in Jesus. And God will not fail to save. So that's the first purpose we see in Luke's preface. He writes a faithful narrative that testifies to the fulfillment of God's plan. The second purpose comes in verse 2. Luke's narrative passes on the truth of God's Word. Luke's narrative passes on the truth of God's Word. We mentioned a moment ago that Luke was not an eyewitness, but verse 2 makes clear that he did receive eyewitness testimony. Listen again to verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word, just as they have delivered these things to us. Again, friends, we hear Luke's concern for accuracy, for faithfulness. He reminds us that there were numerous eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and ministry. And those eyewitnesses handed down the testimony of Jesus Christ. So I don't want to belabor this point, but it is simply too important to overlook. Luke is not making this stuff up. 
He's passing on the testimony of those who saw the Lord Jesus on earth. But you'll also notice that these eyewitnesses are called ministers of the Word in verse 2. You see that there? They're called ministers of the Word. This is such a key point, friends. The idea here is to be the assistant or the helper who serves on behalf of someone or something else. And that's what makes these eyewitnesses so significant in the Gospel of Christ. They were servants of God's Word. Under God's providence, they helped preserve and then pass on what God had revealed in Jesus Christ. In fact, the entire reason why God allowed people to be eyewitnesses was for this reason. To record and then pass down the history of God in Christ. And this purpose becomes even clearer at the end of verse 2. Notice again at the end of verse 2 where Luke says the eyewitnesses delivered these things to us. You see that? That word delivered means to pass down what you have received. And to do so in a way that preserves the truthfulness of the message. That's the emphasis here. Reliability, accuracy, truthfulness. Luke's account is based on reliable testimony. Overall then, what we have in verse 2 is the process of faithful gospel transmission. Faithful Gospel transmission. This is how Luke has come to know the Gospel because eyewitnesses saw it, remembered it, and declared what God has done in Christ. And this is how Luke will now compose his Gospel by carefully preserving and delivering to us what he has also received. From one generation to the next, the Holy Spirit of God has passed on the truthfulness of God's Word. And therefore, we should believe what Luke says. You know, as I think about this faithful gospel transmission in verse 2, two words come to my mind. Perhaps these will be good points of application for you. Two words come to my mind, and the first is gratitude. Gratitude. If you're a Christian today, you stand in debt to those who came before you and delivered the gospel message to the next generation. You owe them your eternal life. Your faith, in some measure, owes to the faithful ministry of saints, some including who are now long gone. I know that God saves, but He saves through means, brothers and sisters. And so if you're a Christian, you stand in debt to people who came before you. Think about this. Think about this. This certainly includes... This certainly includes immediate saints in your personal history. Perhaps it was parents. I'm sorry, I'm thinking about my dad. Perhaps it was parents or grandparents or friends or Sunday school teachers or a pastor. Those people in your immediate history who made sure that you heard the Word of God. But it also includes the entire line of faithful saints down through the ages from the apostles to the eyewitnesses, to Luke, down to all those dear brothers and sisters who stood firm through the ages, and now down to us. If you're a Christian, you stand in debt to those people who came before you. To read the history of the church then is not simply to read events from a bygone era. It is to read your own family tree. The family tree of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
And this should be a great encouragement to us. The history of the church is really the history of God's faithfulness to His people. From one generation to the next. This is why it's important and even helpful to know the church's history. Because it shows us the hand of God in passing on the truthfulness of His Word. And so when I read in verse 2 about eyewitnesses delivering these things to Luke and then Luke delivering them to us, when I read that in verse 2, do you know what I think about? I think about my dad who took me to church. And I think about Miss Margaret who taught my Sunday school class. And Brother Randy who taught my Sunday school class after her. And Brother John who baptized me in the faith. And I'm grateful. And I'm grateful. What a kind Heavenly Father who would not only reveal Himself, but then preserve and pass on that Word for us. Luke's faithfulness in some measure has been used by God to bring about our faith. And the word that that brings to my mind is gratitude. Why would God do this? Because He loves us. And that leads to the second word, and you know where I'm going. It leads to the second word, responsibility. Gratitude leads to responsibility. To believe the Gospel is to be part of the stewardship of God's Word. We believe because brothers and sisters before us delivered the truth to us. And now our role is to deliver the truth to the next generation. Again, God is sovereign. Praise God. But He works through means. And if you want to know how the next generation is going to have the truth, look in the mirror. And look across this room. That's how. That starts in our own homes and in our own churches, which is why it's vital to teach our children the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Read them God's Word, mom and dad. Read them the Word of God. Take them to church. Serve in our children's ministry. And recognize that you're helping to pass on the truth to the next generation. You're one link in that grand chain of the church down through the ages. You see, we are stewards of God's Word revealed in the Gospel. And do you know what the one requirement of a steward is? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. By all means, I pray that we get to see the Gospel advance in our day. I want our church to be full of people. I want other faithful churches to be full of people who have been saved by God and brought into relationship to Jesus Christ. I beg God that we would see the Gospel advance. But if God does not see fit to give us gospel advance in our day, then we still have a monumentally important role to play in the work of God's mission. And that role is faithfulness. We hold fast to the truth. We deliver what we received. And by God's grace, future generations come to receive. It's a stewardship. It's responsibility, friends. Do you pray to stand firm in the truth? Do you yourself know the truth of God's Word? If an unbeliever were to come to you today and say, what is this Christianity thing? Could you tell him the essence of the Gospel message? Could you tell him the truth of God's Word? Do you know the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Do you pray for our church to remain faithful? To pass on what we first received? Let's not take it for granted, friends. I hope we pray for these things. This is no small thing. Pray. 
Pray both for yourself and for our church that we would follow in Luke's footsteps and deliver to the next generation what we have received so that someday, maybe 30, 40, 50 years from now, there's another brother standing in a pulpit or another sister leading a women's Bible study who's able to say, I believe because brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so handed the faith down to me. Pray that God would help us to be faithful, to hold fast and to pass on. We've got to keep going. That's purpose number two. That brings us to the final purpose in Luke's preface. Verse 4, Luke's narrative strengthens the faith of God's people. Luke's narrative strengthens the faith of God's people. You'll notice in verse 3 that Luke mentions a man named Theophilus. Theophilus, lover of God. He is mentioned both in this Gospel account as well as in the book of Acts. Remember, Luke's Gospel is the only one to have a sequel, so to speak. Uh, the book of Acts. And both are addressed uh, to this man, Theophilus. Now the question is, who is Theophilus? Was he a believer already? Or is he simply interested in Christianity? Was he a Roman official? Or some other high-ranking member of society? Luke does call him most excellent Theophilus, so perhaps he's a man of some means. But honestly, we don't, we don't know a lot about Theophilus outside of Luke and Acts. That's it. There is, however, an important point to note in verse 4. You'll notice that Luke says the purpose of the book is to give Theophilus certainty concerning the things he has been taught. You see that there? The things he's been taught. I take this to mean that Theophilus is in fact a believer in Jesus Christ. He's been taught the Gospel. He has believed but now Luke aims to provide greater certainty about this Gospel truth. Perhaps perhaps Theophilus had some questions about the Gospel message. Or perhaps Theophilus was a Gentile, and he was struggling with whether or not Gentiles are fully received as the people of God. This is what I think he is. I think he's a Gentile. We know from the book of Acts that Gentiles being brought into the church was an issue And Luke's Gospel contains a clear emphasis on Jesus reaching out to Gentiles beyond Jewish populations. So perhaps Theophilus needs reassurance about salvation being given to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. Whatever the specific reason, the key point is that Luke writes to give Theophilus certainty. He doesn't want this brother to be confused. He doesn't want him to be misled. He wants Theophilus to have confidence. He wants to remind Theophilus, of the stable foundation for his faith. There's no need to be worried that Theophilus is missing out on the work of God. Jesus Christ is the work of God. He is the fulfillment of God's plan. And that's Luke's purpose in writing this, to assure Theophilus that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all who believe. But here's what I want to leave us with this morning, friends. This is the takeaway from the first four verses. This certainty, this assurance of faith, is not based on how strongly Theophilus believes. Please listen to me on this. This certainty that Luke wants to give him, it's not based on how strongly Theophilus believes. It's not based on how firm Theophilus proves to be on his own. No, the certainty that Luke aims to give is rooted in what God has done in Jesus Christ. You see it there? In the verses, Luke's entire pastoral purpose is to get Theophilus to think less about himself and more about Jesus. 
who Jesus is and what He has done to save His people. That's why Luke writes this Gospel account. That's why he's done so much careful research and recorded the events of Jesus' life. It's because the assurance of faith comes only from the Word of God as it gives us Christ. Many Christians struggle with assurance of faith. Many Christians lack certainty regarding the truth. That may be true of you today. And if so, there's nothing to be ashamed of in that, by the way. This is true of many Christians. But if that is true of you today, I want you to hear me on this. God intends for you to have certainty. God intends for you to have assurance of faith. But the way that God gives you that assurance is through His Word. And more specifically, through the testimony of who Jesus is and what He has done to fulfill God's promise to save. That's why Luke writes this book. And to put it plainly, friends, that's why we need to listen and believe. So look to God's Word. Believe what God has written. Read, believe, obey, and apply what God has said. There is certainty for the people of God. But praise God, that certainty comes not from within ourselves, but from the trustworthy Word of God. Look to God's Word. What are the things in life that you are certain are true? Friends, I pray that through this series, we all may be able to say with increasing confidence that we are certain Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again to save sinners like us. And I pray this Christ-centered confidence would lead to greater obedience to Christ, greater worship of Christ, and perhaps most of all, greater devotion to the mission of Christ as we minister His trustworthy, truthful, accurate Gospel both to one another and to this lost world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word that is true, that is faithful, that is accurate, that can give life, that sustains us in the faith. Father, we pray both for ourselves and for one another that You would give us great certainty, great assurance, great confidence that You have indeed fulfilled Your plan to save Your people and You have done so in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to believe. We do believe, God. Help our unbelief. We pray that we would grow stronger in faith, that we might be more faithful in the mission that You have given to the church of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for glory to be given to His name both now and forever. Amen.